Welcome to the Chasing Happiness Podcast, where we explore the secrets to achieving a fulfilling and joyful life. Our mission is to provide you with the tools, insights, and inspiration you need to overcome obstacles and thrive in all areas of your life. Each week, we bring you interviews with thought leaders, experts, and everyday people who have found happiness in the face of adversity. We cover a wide range of topics, from personal development and entrepreneurship to health and wellness. So whether you're looking to achieve financial freedom, improve your relationships, or enhance your overall well-being, you'll find the guidance you need on the Chasing Happiness podcast. Let's get to this week's episode. Hey guys, Ryan DeMent from Chasing Happiness podcast. I hope you guys are having a great day. Got a fresh haircut this week. I'm a little short, but guess what? That's what happens when you're out in Arizona and it's getting hot. This week on the podcast, we have Elizabeth Lewis, and this is interesting. We met on PodMatch, but I don't have her background, but we're going to wing it like we normally do, guys. Elizabeth really helps people with a mindset shift become to one to become successful, but overcome their obstacles in life. And a little bit about her background, she had some items or things that happened in her past as a kid, and we're going to talk about those. But what she's doing today is exactly what we talk about on this podcast. Changing your mindset, shifting away from change is a four-letter word, and kicking change's butt and moving off that couch. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Ryan. You nailed that intro. You are more than welcome. Thank you for coming on. I know we got connected on Podmatch. I'm pretty excited to hear what you're doing, but also a little bit about your background and, and how you got there, because that's going to be a powerful story for the listeners. Yeah. Which one should we start with? What I'm doing now let's, or background? Well, let's go background. Let's just jump right into it. Well, let's get there and we'll see where it takes us. Yeah. So I became an executive coach. It was a fluke, definitely not planned. My undergrad is in television producing. So if that tells you anything about what I do now, I do have two graduate degrees in psychology, but the way I got here was honestly God. But it all started because my brother has psychopathic tendencies and he tried killing me my whole childhood. And uh, obviously wow. I got some trauma from that. Let's just cut the cookie there. <laughs> and uh, I obviously had been in and out of therapy since I was 11, but no one really could explain transformation to me. Like it was more like infatuation. Um, and I got tired of therapists being like, oh my God, you've had so much crap going on in your life. Let's meet every week. Ugh. And I was like, cool, let's like get transformation going, maybe give me out of this mental torture. And they couldn't do it. And this sounds really cocky and I don't mean it this way, but I was in church one day and I just felt the Lord tell me to talk to the woman next to me. And so I did. And she told me she was getting her master's in positive psychology with a coaching psychology subspecialty. And I was like, oh, I'm going to do that. And it was really there that I learned how to fix myself. I decided to go to psychology just to learn and fix myself because I wasn't getting a lot of results with therapists. And I fell in love with neurobiology and neuroscience and neuroplasticity. And I just used me as a guinea pig and I started to transform. And then um, I just was naturally good at it. I do have a gift for this. And I say that humbly. And my professor started giving me their overflow for their clients and the rest just became history. And then in the coaching world, sometimes therapists throw up their nose at coaches. Mm. And I got really tired of that mistreatment because I'm a nerd. Like I, I've read most of the third wave therapies out there, most of the manuals. So ACT, DBT, cognitive behavior therapy and more. And so it was frustrating to me because I don't like the red tape of this world. I'm just going to be honest. Like, it's just so baffling to me that people care about a certification more than they care about a master's degree. I just don't understand it. And then 
I have the degree to be a therapist and like what you learn in that degree is pathetic in my opinion. And so I decided just to become a therapist so I didn't have to hear the backlash from coaches. And I specialize in neuropsychotherapy and I've learned a lot and I love growing, but I just find some of the red tape in the coaching mental health world to be really frustrating. So that's my negative spiel on that. But that isn't that just life in general? It just seems like everything we do in life has to have that red tape. And yeah. God spoke to you in church to say, you need to talk to this woman. Yeah. And it changed your life. And you used a very powerful word, transformation. Mm -hmm. Doesn't get used a lot today with anything that we do. Why that word? Why were you really fixed on transformation? I felt mentally tortured. I remember, gosh, in my early 20s, I was living in Atlanta, Georgia, because I was finishing my undergrad. And I would message my mom and I would be like, I feel like I'm in, oh my God, I forget the word, but solitary confinement in jail, but I just have the ability to like leave, right? So I have this physical freedom, but I don't have mental freedom. And I just wanted to get free. I ended up being diagnosed with complex PTSD when I was 26. By the time I was 27, I was free from it because I did a lot of the techniques in neuroplasticity. I mean, you, you can change your world. But one thing that's difficult that people fail to understand is if you've only ever known stress your whole life, which unfortunately, many Americans only know stress, which is sad because we are the freest country in the world, but we are just obsessed with money a little too much, in my opinion. Yes. And so I just, just wanted to learn what it was like to be optimistic and just to rest in the present moment and to... Just be able to breathe or honestly not be afraid that someone was going to attack me. For the longest time, I couldn't dry my hair because I had to always use my hearing as a sense to help me identify if I needed to take cover or not. You learn lots of survival mechanisms, obviously, when you're in a hellhole physically or more mentally. And so I had to break free from a lot of my hypervigilant standings. And I don't know the percentage of how many people live with a psychopath. And that's not like a clinical word or anything. But um a lot of therapists aren't always equipped to deal with some of the chronic trauma, especially back then. We've grown a lot in therapy with trauma and really bringing that in and how to work with people who had trauma because they call out. I don't know if I can cuss. I don't like to cuss, but Go they, ahead. Call, they call it their, your BS a lot quicker. So a lot of the neutral face and let's not talk about me and only talk about it doesn't work for people who've gone through trauma. Like you have to be authentic. You have to be honest. You have to create psychological safety. It's just a different, a different dichotomy when you work with someone with extreme trauma. Wow. You've opened up Pandora's box. You can go down like 20 rabbit holes and I'm like overwhelmed with all the questions I want to ask you. So the first question is, how has counseling or therapy transformed from I'm an old guy, I'm going to be 50. So I'm sure it's changed from when I was a kid to now. And then how can we be more authentic with ourselves? And when I say that is maybe it's through therapy or maybe it's through holding ourselves accountable. I leave that up to you to interpret it and how you want to go about it. But that's what we lack. And then the third piece of this is you said something about money and how we're infatuated with it. I'm using my words, not yours. I'm yeah. sorry. No. Why is it? Why are we so money hungry and why are we so driven to make the almighty dollar? America, we're all like mutts at the end of the day. Most of us are Anglo-Saxons yeah. at the end of the day. Just being really broad in our speaking. I don't know if it's one thing. Greed is obviously popular in all countries, but we are a capitalist country and I'm not against that. So please don't like like being a capitalist country in America helps a lot of the communist countries and a lot of the people that are being are being persecuted by their government. So I'm not saying that. 
It's just in America, we just have one definition of success financially. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to ascribe to it by any means, but you know, I have my theories on why, because I'm only 33 years old, so I can't. Oh, you're a pup. My dad was born in the Great Depression, so I'd have to, I'd be curious to know what his thoughts were. He died when I was young, but it seems like the family unit has been broken a little bit more in American culture. And it seems like it really started when Americans were forced to have two incomes instead of one income at the end of the day. And so just, I believe that there's a lot of spiritual roots that one has to take into consideration when you're dealing with the mental and the psyche reality of life. And so just spiritually speaking, the spirit of rejection is a really hard spirit to overcome. And if as a child, you think black and white until age 11, if you're thinking black and white and your parents are interacting with you and you start to feel like their engagement with you is a little bit neglect or rejecting and you carry that through. And so what happens is you start to get this performance love that says, I'm only worthy until I can prove my worth. And one of the best ways to prove your worth is through finances, right? Because it's more finite than just having strong self-worth. So I think, and also like social media hasn't helped with the whole quick, get get rich quick thing, right? I hung up my shingle and now I'm worth $3 billion. Look at me. It's 24 seven news. It's just sensationalism, right? I don't know. What are your thoughts? You've hit on a lot of what I think about. I don't know if you've heard my story, but I'm a two-time failure at entrepreneurship. I grew up in corporate America, ran call centers, collection agencies, underwriting, any financial instrument I touched, managed two to 3,000 people at a time, and I thought I was the badass guy and I could actually go out and be an entrepreneur. Failed twice, all because of what the word you just said, greed. It was all about the money. And until the third time that I'm on now, until I learned what I was passionate about, what made me happy. And how I could translate that into a living. I had to support myself. I got to pay my bills. Yeah. Until that actually happened, I was stuck in that same place. And today, through my podcasts, both of them, Chasing Financial Freedom, Chasing Happiness, I get a lot of people that reach out to me and say, hey, I need your help. Or I want to know what you're doing to get there. And I said, if you want to be a 10-year overnight success, then you need to follow me. This has been a 10-year journey to figure this out. And I'm still figuring out on a daily basis. I like you. I like what you talk about when you talk about God. There, there is a higher being, and if, whether people believe it or not, there is. I try to make that connection every morning. Yeah. I sit down. I read some motivational scripture. I actually journal for you younger people out there. It's called putting a pen to paper. I do that. I still do that. I don't use my laptop or my MacBook Pro or anything like that. I literally physically write it out. And then at that time, that's when I write my goals out for the day that I'm trying to achieve in my overall life. And that has helped me connect to myself, my passion. Uh, but it also keeps me grounded because I have, like I said earlier, I have zero patience. I've, that's probably the biggest thing I've had to work on for myself and failure. I used to think failure was a bad thing or an embarrassment. Yeah. Now I wear it as a badge of honor. When I fail, I know I've put myself out there Yeah. and I've tried everything I possibly can and I get back up and I dust myself off and I have to figure a way. Otherwise, I don't get to eat. I don't get a roof over my head and my family is not taken care of. Those three things motivate me on a daily basis to keep me going. Yeah. And I'd argue, Ryan, you're not a failure, right? You keep trying. Oh, yeah. But 
I use failure as a motivator. It's part of the success process and how we define success. You define it probably differently than I do, but I look at it this way. Success for me is passion. Yeah. I want to be happy. I live a life of abundance and abundance can be so many things. And I can define that and we won't go on that because yeah. that could be a whole topic. Oh yeah. But, it, it, but that's how I look at life. But if you look at 15, 20 years ago, who I was all about chasing the dollar, keeping up with the Joneses and the Joneses were broke and going to file bankruptcy. That's who I was. Yeah, no, it's true. And you have, as an entrepreneur, you have to see failure as feedback. But the thing is like, nobody knows what they're doing in life. Like nobody, like every life opportunity is an opportunity to grow you and add something to your life at the end of the day. So you have to be resilient in today's world. And I just want to say, I also put pen to paper for journaling. Cool. <laughs> you're, you're an old soul at heart. I am. In fact, a lot of people are like, how are you so wise for your age? I'm like, yeah, my dad had me when he was 61. I don't know. <laughs> but that's, but everybody has that different place and it's a week doesn't go by. I'll give you as an example. I actually, two months ago, three months ago, I decided that I was going to start putting some of my shorts on TikTok for the podcast. And I'm like, whatever, I'll post two or three times a day. Boom, boom, boom. Really nothing took off. And then all of a sudden people started seeing it, whatever, great, whatever. Then I get a kid reach out of nowhere and say, hey, I want to be like you. And I'm like, okay, what are you talking about? It was on TikTok. And he goes, I want to start doing podcasting. I'm like, cool. And he goes, I put out one video on a podcast that I shot and I got no views. So I'm just giving up. And I'm like, that... You didn't even get to the party, dude. It's that's the mentality that's out there. It's one shot and you're done. And it's it's yeah. so horrible. But, but that just seems like it's in society today and it's ingrained. And it's like, how do we get that out of our heads uh, always and move forward? Society. I think it's I'm always, sorry. I said, I think it's always been in society. I think that. Really? Yeah. If you think about it, like one percent, what is it? Two percent? Of uh, Americans have more than $2,000 in their bank account. Something like that. Yeah. You're it's close. shocking to me. Uh, and I just think back to years and years ago, of Oprah Winfrey, regardless of what you think about her and uh, some of the professional athletes, a lot of people want to hit the easy button in life. But I think it's, yes. I think it's more magnified today because today there's more and more studies coming out that social media is making more and more kids depressed and narcissistic. So I think because you're hearing everyone have a microphone and a platform of saying, look at me. And you don't like, do you really know <laughs> like really no. how successful they are too? And no, for me, like success is doing God's will. That's my definition of it. But I think everyone has an unrealistic viewpoint. I feel like the Hollywood is a little bit more embedded in our culture today than it was years ago. Maybe we'll like that. that way. Yeah, I like that. But then how do we as individuals start working through that process to where we can eliminate the Hollywood mentality? And this is my old soul again. We Damn. have to start working and grinding it out and putting the time and effort into the things that we want. They're not just going to come overnight. I think it's a lifelong process. I think what you want today is going to be different in 10 years. Let's be real. How many times did you think you wanted something you got and you go, oh, I don't like this, actually. I like the fantasy yeah. a lot better. So I think it's I think it's growing a healthy psychology because anyone who chases a fantasy is a fool at the end of the day. And more and more people chase fantasies. We're more of a self-centered culture, period. That started back in 1960. 
with the trophy movement, like everyone gets a trophy movement. It didn't become full blown until 1990. And really that early? Yeah. I thought it was in the early 2000s, 1990. Wow. It started in California in 1960 and it didn't make it to the entire United States until the 1990s. I only know this because I've read it so many times in some of my psychology studies. And then the other thing that's interesting is the way we view relationships and interact with people shifted to a we community, to an I community. And obviously the world is more connected than ever, but people are more alone than ever. And so people don't know how to communicate. And like, I find it funny. I read studies and they're like, kids are complaining that they don't get any friendship time. So they go home and they text each other. I'm like, what the hell? You, yeah. you guys still have lunch and gym. Are you not talking to each other there? But most people don't know how, like we, we've lost a lot of the soft skills. And it's funny yeah. to me because people think that the hard skills are so important. When I personally think soft skills should be called hard skills and hard skills should be called soft skills because it's so much easier to go learn a trade than it is to learn how to communicate or influence a person or have integrity or work on your self-discipline traits to actually be a functioning human, human in society. But that's just my random spiel. No, it's a great randoms view. And, and the a good example, we can go down another rabbit hole is when you go out to dinner and you see a family of four sitting at the table all on their cell phones. Right. And it's like, you guys are, you guys are sitting within inches of each other. Right. And you're on your cell phones and not having a community and not communicating verbally communicating with one another. I was at a restaurant probably about a month ago. And it was a somewhat older couple. They were older than me. So I would probably say they were in their late 50s, early 60s. The woman was sitting on one side. He was sitting on the other. They were texting each other back and forth. And I'm like, are you kidding me? That's young kids. What are you guys doing? My favorite personally is, when, and I don't have kids. So I, I will, let me like tell you, I'm being hypocritical, I guess we could say. But my favorite is when a parent just throws the device to the child that's having a tantrum. Yes. Instead of the child, how to regulate their emotions. And that's another thing. I mean, you, we really saw this with the baby boomer generation. So kids that are more of my age, especially boys, we're seeing there's more and more people who don't know how to regulate their emotions, that don't know how to cope yeah. in effective ways. If you're going to have children, please do the responsibility of actually raising them and educating them and teaching them. You can't just constantly throw band-aids to stuff. But I get it. Life's busy. Life gets crazy. Sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. And I'd rather you do that than shake the child or kill the child. Yeah, for sure. But, it, but man, this is, we, you keep on opening up Pandora's box. This is going to be fun. But baby boomers, and this is, I'm going to shift a little bit is this is a mindset that I have and something I'm doing on the side is they are the largest group of small business owners in the United mm -hmm. States right now, by far, hands down. And right now, there are almost 14 million baby boomers that are entrepreneurs, small business owners that do not have a succession plan because their children have no interest or they have not gotten involved in these businesses. So you have these businesses are either going to wither away and close, potentially be sold, or three, just fall off the face of the earth and never be heard of. And when I learned about this about six months ago, I was like, are you kidding me? So yeah. what happened? So then I started digging into the psychology of it and a, and then this is just a personal, I only did 25 or 30 businesses and I'm still doing homework, but out of those 25 or 30 businesses, roughly about 35% of them had their kids on the payroll, then they did nothing, zero, no work. And yeah. one, one business I was looking to purchase the 
owner, it's, I don't know if you're familiar with SDE, it's seller discretionary income or expense uh, income, excuse me. And it is all about how much they're taking home, how much they're taking out of the business. And one gentleman was taking almost $800,000 a year out of his business. I'm like, where is that going? You need $800,000 a year. And so finally, after a long conversation and just being open and honest, he was paying his three kids. That was all going to his three kids, $800,000. Wow. And I well, said, parent, if you feel but, like you got to help your kids that much, but they never worked. They never were involved in this business. He slaved over that business, created it from the ground up. But in fairness, it was his choice. So you can't get mad at somebody who's choosing oh, to no, do no, it. No. But what shocks me is when corporate American job companies do that. I've known tons of people who've been on the payroll at 300000 or more. And the company forgot that they were even enrolled in the company. Like they, they didn't know that they were still working in the company. And their job had been discontinued, yet they're still getting a paycheck. That's always been yeah. like me. I'm like, wow. Yeah. Wow. It's just like with everybody thinks chat GPT is like the best thing since sliced bread. Now you've got all these jobs coming along and now you have chat GPT prompters or engineers being paid $400,000 a year. And if you actually just sit down and actually start learning how to talk to it, it actually is not that hard. I've been an early adopter of AI and I've been using it for almost two years. And once you can start learning how to talk to it and be able to work through the nuances, it's pretty powerful. It's not going to do your work for you. Yeah. The human still has to take us from step one and beyond, but the AI can take you from step zero to one if you give it enough information. My favorite, I'm not against AI, but I think some things people are just like in la land with AI personally. And sometimes I will get people who do consultations with me because they want to learn more about what I do so that they can program a machine to do what I do. And I'm like, cool, best of luck. But your machine can never pick up on spiritual issues. And that's going to be the core issue of mental health at the end of the day is going to be the spiritual and the um, I can't think of the word right now, but subtleties that only a trained ear can pick up that you're never going to pick up through going through a training. There's certain there's just too many things that go on in the human soul. Humans are so complex. And yes. computers cannot read the complexity. It's, it's zeros and ones at the end of the day. It's got to be linear. And you cannot bring a linear product to understand the complexity of a, hum of a human. Like when my clients come in and they're like, I'm a good person. Oh, shut up. No, you're not. You're a complicated person. Okay. <laughs> it's true. Like we, like I have evil messed up thoughts. You do too. But you can't say like a good person is saying you are like, you don't ever, you are never verbally abusive or emotionally abusive. And that's really easy to do. Yeah. Amazing how we view ourselves, isn't it? It's a bias, right? I want you to view me as complicated, but I'm going to, or God, it's a bias that like, I want people to view me as like complicated, but I'm going to view everyone else as simple. Yeah, there's a bias. Biases are huge. And that, that, oof, that there's another rabbit hole we can go down and where that takes us in society today. Cause that's, that, that's what we deal with on a daily basis is bias. And in, in what it looks like, it looks different from everybody's standpoint, but how do we work through that? I got to Now I'm going to have you put on your therapist hat, your coaching hat. How do we work through that? Self-awareness and not everyone's willing to grow self-awareness. You, at some point you have to realize that nobody can tell you if your perspective is right or wrong. We just can't at the end of the day, we can tell you where you have biases or where you contradict or where you might have unhealthy thinking or what have you. 
but you have to start to to see yourself as the common denominator and see how you're interacting, right? And not all biases are bad, right? Develop a love bias, develop a quick forgiveness bias. There was a study done, I think in 2017, don't quote me on that. The army did the study and it was just for individuals who'd been in the army or were currently in the army. And what they found is most people had what's called a hostile bias. So when there's ambiguity or neutral faces or expressions, they interpret it as you are being hostile towards them. Um, now, you also have to think about this. People in the military are literally in life and death situations. So sometimes you want to have a little bit of these biases for protection. Also know that if you've had chronic trauma, you're going to have a trauma bias. You're going to see things a little skewed. And so 95% of our thoughts are the same every single day. They're saying in one, two, 99% can be negative. So at some point, you've got to learn yourself. You've got to learn how you think. You've got to learn um, your reactions because most of our thoughts are going to be in that automatic thinking, which is going to be majority of the same thoughts every single day. That's why cognitive behavior therapy labeled them cognitive distortions because there's themes, right? You're going to all or nothing thinking or you're going to personalize stuff or you're going to overgeneralize. So you have to start to pay attention to your thoughts and your words and what you're saying so that you can start to make shifts. But not everybody wants to do the work. There's the key word, work. It's a four-letter word. A lot of people don't want to do that. And another question towards that, how did the pandemic affect that? Oh, I have no idea. I didn't pay really any insight to the pandemic. I thought it was all government and BS. The swine <laughs> flu killed more people. Oh, no, didn't oh, no, do no, a darn thing. I get it. No, but what I'm trying to ask is about the bias in doing the work. And we can go back to the soft skills. Yeah. And being able to communicate because now great technology, you and I can connect for a podcast like this. Yeah. yeah. But now here in Arizona, I'll walk around and I will see people wearing two and three masks yeah. out Same still. Here. And I'm like, okay, did you guys miss the memo? What they said about masks in the size of the micron and what it actually became. And it, it's or still the fact gonna... that the box says does not protect from viruses. Yes. Unless but it's that. A... N95 or K95 mask. Yeah. But what happened to, I mean, maybe that's common sense. I don't know. But what happened to all that? It just seems like it's gone way downhill a lot quicker. You have to think about all the weird things you do, right? Like I do some weird things that I know isn't going to do what it does. I can't think of any off the top of my head, but. It can't be that weird if you can't think of them off the top of your head. <laughs> I'll email you tonight if I can think okay. of it. Uh, like, I still have, I show I died from an eating disorder. I still have compulsions sometimes from my eating disorder. Like, sometimes I overwork out thinking that, like, burning another hundred calories is going to really actually make a darn difference, right? Mm -hmm. It's what I call, like, mental masturbation. It feels mentally good. It makes you feel safe. It makes you feel secure. So my thing is, if somebody's going to wear a mask because it makes them feel safe, then great. Fine. Do it. At the end of the day. We know that 98 to 75% of all mental and physical illnesses are due to your thoughts. And you got to be able to control them and be, have healthy thoughts. Here we go. Another rabbit hole. Yeah. Oh boy. So we won't go there. We'll digress. So tell us a little bit about what you do on a daily basis and you, how you help individuals, corporations, whoever you're working with your clients yeah. shift their mindset and get into a better space. Yeah, I work predominantly with high performers and executives. I've worked with a few professional athletes. What I do is I put them through a psychometric assessment to figure out which psychometric or personality traits are really hindering them the most. And this helps create agreement with the client. And so I'll point it out and I'll explain 
this is why you do some of the things that you don't like. And then from there, it's really listening to what do they envision? What's the goal? It's so unique, right? It's so personalized. What do you want to do? I've worked with financial advisors where they just did not care what people thought about them, which is really a strength. But unfortunately, it's also a weakness, too, because especially if you're that choleric or dominant personality, you can be really tactless in your speech. And obviously, when you're doing sales, ultimately, for a living or financial advisors or entrepreneurs at the end of the day, you can't be tactless like that. Like you have to learn how to enjoy small talk because it's just unfortunately a reality of life. But you can shift small talk into really meaningful conversations quite quickly when you know what you're doing. And so I worked with one gentleman just to increase his communication and his interactions with people. And it increased his closing rate by 25%, which was $4 million a month. Um, and I've worked with other people of just helping them become bolder or assertive. I've worked with vice presidents who just weren't very assertive or they're too nurturing. And so they let everybody walk around them, right? And so developing boundaries or entrepreneurs who are too creative and too flexible. So they say yes to everything, right? And it's no, you can't say yes to everything. And in business, you really do need that creative person, but you also need that managerial person who can implement everything and keep the creative person a little like grounded. And if you're a solopreneur, then you have to learn how to be both at the end of the day. And so everything is psychological. The other day I had a consultation with a gentleman. He's, I don't understand how this will make me more money. And I'm like, you don't understand how feeding yourself a healthy meal once a week could improve your quality of life, which could then improve your business. Like everything's psychological. Wow. I mean, that, that's amazing. And I can relate to what you just said here a few seconds ago is being a solopreneur, you have to wear both hats. I also have a business partner. I call him the Steve Jobs of the business. And I'm Steve Wozniak because I'm the operator. And he wants to throw all the spaghetti on the wall. And it's, dude, that spaghetti ain't sticking here. This is what we're doing. This is how we're doing it. And there's sometimes it's the old adage of herding cats. That's how I feel like with him. It's great ideas, but we're going to wither these down to what we can actually do. And then we can put it on a wish board of other things and then we'll work through that process. That was probably one of the biggest daunting tasks of having a business partner, of having somebody that was so far different than me. But it's also rewarding, too, because he comes up with things that I will never think about. Yeah. And that's why the yin and yang works very well. You need innovation. And here's the thing with creative people, too. Like, sometimes you'll have a great idea, but it can take five years or longer for you to actually play that card. And so you have to develop patience, too, with some of this. Like, it's I'm doing things today that I created almost a decade ago. And sometimes you just have to wait for the right timing or for when the culture of what you do is ready for it. Timing is everything. So they say. Time, yeah, as <laughs> we say, but patience is another. And it's something that is, is very daunting and a hard task for me at times. But I know patience will get me through it. But persistence and consistency have been my best friends in this journey of entrepreneurship. Because if I did not have that, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. Yeah. I'll tell you, I've worked with high performers. And one thing that will break a high performer is their lack of self-discipline traits. And your self-discipline traits are going to be your self-confidence. It's going to be your composure, your autonomy, your contentment, and your control. And it's ultimately your emotional intelligence. And that has to be grown at the end of the day, because you have to learn how to sometimes shut up or be patient or allow somebody to say whatever they're going to say. And that discipline is really going to make or break you at the end of the day too. 
And I think that really boils down to is how bad do you want it? And then you have to translate that into short-term goals. I call them daily goals because I have baby steps. Because if I don't break it down into those baby steps, I get overwhelmed with the larger goal. And then I see it out there and I'm like, oh, I'm not hitting it. But if I can break it down into those daily goals, it works. A lot of, and I say this from, I, I belong to, I call it a master group, but it really isn't because you don't pay for it. It's just a bunch of small business owners here locally. We get together once a week and we talk about the crap that goes on in our businesses. And then we share ideas and help one another. The cool thing about it is everybody's struggling with something different and we all can chip in and help that person when they have a problem. But the one thing that you can see out of each of these entrepreneurs and small business owners is the ability to say, I'm going to achieve this goal and this is how I'm going to get to it. And then they can, I call it backtrack it and be able to step through it and put the time and effort in because you're not going to always have money to achieve a goal. The, at least for me, the most valuable asset I have is time. You can never get time back. I can replace money. That you can. But when you put the time and effort into something and you're consistent about it, it will happen over time. You just have to be persistent and consistent with it. That, that is probably the biggest thing that I struggle with when talking to young entrepreneurs or somebody that wants to start a business or maybe even go buy a business. They think they're going to be able to walk in in this boom, it's going to work. And it's like, that's not how this works. Wouldn't that be nice? But then I don't think you would appreciate it. I appreciate the ride. But speaking about time, I would agree. But another element to time that always amazes me that executives and entrepreneurs rarely do is you have to track your time. You have to know where your time is going. Yes. Because so many times I'll work with a, an entrepreneur and an executive and they are doing all of the work that feels good and avoiding all of the work that actually needs to get done. Because fear is a huge stopper. Fear is the number one killer in their world, not freaking COVID or whatever diseases of the essence. I think I'm a big Grant Cardone fan and I've read 10X's book, I don't know how many times, but I think there's somewhere in there. I think his quote is, and if I remember right, I refuse to fuel fear with time. If I remember right, I haven't read it in a while, but I think that's one of his biggest quotes in there. And I, it's true. If it's something that makes you nervous and you're scared about it, you can't wait. You have to go do it and you just have to move forward. And I think we struggle with that. But once you do it several times and it becomes repetition, repetition, woo, I need coffee, man. He got it. Repetition. repetition. And we continue to do it like going to the gym or eating healthy or whatever. It's now, it's just muscle memory. You just go do it. It's those first several times that hurt the most, but then you learn them. I think you learn the most from those times and you go back for more and it just becomes that way. It's that, I call it that sales call you don't want to make. If you think that you have to make that sales call and you keep on saying you don't, you're missing out on something that's big there. Pick yeah. up the damn phone, make a phone call and see what happens. Yeah, yeah. My fiance was in Delta for a really long time. He's actually one of the youngest people to ever enter Delta. And he always tells me when I'm a little like having my entrepreneurial neurotic moments that we get, he's always everything you want is on the other side of fear. And it's true. And one thing that I always encourage people, like for, personally for me, fear of failure does not scare me. I am so good with failing. That is great. For me, it's like the success part is like, what? It's like when you catch the ball, you're like, look, mom, I caught the ball off. That's more of a kind of the newness for me. One thing I started doing years ago 
is every single week I would do one thing that would take me out of my comfort zone. Now I'm at a point of where I just try not to have a comfort zone. I will tell you, I hate driving because I feel like after COVID, nobody, everyone like forgot how to drive. <laughs> it's yeah. taken. It a little annoys me a little bit there, but you have to learn how to get out of your comfort zone. You And this is part of learning your thoughts, too, because it's so easy. And I'm guilty of this, too. It's so easy of being like, no, I don't want to do this, even though whatever this is would increase your quality of life, would increase your self-efficacy, would do so much good. It's like when you leave the gym and you're still normalizing the gym relationship and you're like, wow, I feel amazing. It's the quote in Legally Blonde, which is one of my favorite. Happy people just don't kill their spouses or whatever. And it's true, right? You get those endorphins, you feel good and you have a more productive day. And But at the same time, too, I've always believed that um, sometimes us humans can get such bad tunnel vision that we miss the forest for the trees. And so sometimes don't force things. Like sometimes you're actually where you need to be. And sometimes we need to rest. Like rest is one of the most important things. And we don't talk about that enough in America. It's always about do more, do this, do that. And we have one of the most unhealthy work cultures in the world uh, because of our obsession to work. What you do and what you earn, that that is not connected to your self-worth. Oh boy, we that, that's a whole nother conversation we can go down, but we're running short on time. So that we might have you back on that, all joking aside, because that that is a really good conversation because it, it's a balancing act that you have to find. And the short version of that is you got to be present in what you're actually doing, whether it's your personal life, or your business life, and you have to be able to I hate the word segmented. Oh my gosh, I can't speak English today, guys. You're doing great. I hate it. Uh, yeah, it doesn't need to be segmented. It needs to have focus. And when you come to sit down, I think the stat is the average American works less than 37 hours a week right now is what the la the latest labor t statistics that just came out, which means you're three to four hours a week that you're just putzing around doing nothing at work. I, I say that because people are not being productive. So could you be more productive and make it maybe a game or something to that extent when you're at work, sit down? and try to be the most productive you can be that day and see where that takes you. Yeah. Keep track of what you're doing. And I can guarantee you there's things in there that you shouldn't be doing that you could be working on and being more productive and maybe spending more time at home instead of trying to work those extra hours. Yeah, but do people care? That's And it's interesting that they said 37 because I read... I don't know when I read so much that I sometimes don't remember when or where it came from. But we know that the average CEO wastes five hours a day what are you doing? But the average employer, employee, excuse me, is only productive for two hours and 18 minutes a day. Really? That's the, what one of these studies I found. I don't remember where it was or what it was about, but I just remember it was in, within the recent five years. And I was just blown away by that. But I also wouldn't be surprised. I, I, and I think it was before COVID because it'd be interesting to see what it is now COVID because it seems like some people are more productive at home because there is less interruptions. Whereas other people were more productive in the office because they like that constant water cooler talk. But at the end of the day, like, I guess I, I'm not a lazy person at the end of the day. It doesn't sound like you are, too. Like, we're very ambitious people um, and a lot of endurance. And it seems like those are more rare breeds at the end of the day. Some people just want to. It's called selective achievers in my world, right? Like when I give somebody a psychometric test and. They're scoring a seven or below. That's where we look at selective achievers. But at the same time, when you're scoring a 10, 99% of the time, greed is motivating you. 
Yeah. Uh, so it's it's just interesting. Like I I just wish people would find the peace that they're really promised and learn how to lean into that. That you don't have to strive as much as you're striving to be successful. But until they actually have that coming to Jesus moment with themselves and figure out what truly makes them happy, their passion, whatever, it never will change. They just think that it's all about the money and we're chasing that dream. And until you sit down and figure out what you want, and this is just me, I think we can monetize pretty much anything in today's world with technology. So if you have a passion, find a way to monetize it. It might not monetize immediately. Maybe it's a side hustle that builds up over time. Okay, so do that and then find what you want to do out of that. Maybe it comes into, maybe it morphs into something else. I don't know, but we're not willing to put that time and effort into finding the passion that we're, that drives us to turn it into something that we monetize that ultimately can turn into a business. I don't know if it's fair to say that. I I think fear stops a lot of people. And I think at the end of the day, we're talking, if like we were to broaden out, I think that more and more people need to learn how to be a tough-minded optimist. You sound pretty optimistic and tough-minded just talking to you. Most people are pessimistic. Most people are so negative. And people forget that your thoughts, you work to create your most dominant thought. Like people, yes. people don't realize how much your thoughts create your reality. And you are in control of your thoughts. No, you don't, you don't control every thought that you have. But you control which thoughts you meditate on or you latch on to. And at some point, you have to train your brain how to think positively, how to be optimistic. And then people are like, I'm waiting for the shoe to drop. Can you enjoy the right now? Because it hasn't dropped yet. And just to think it always is like you're setting yourself up for failure in that case. Like fear is a self-fulfilling prophecy. There was a study done to about lucky people. And I know we're almost out of time, but it's a really quick. They had, they had 100 self-proclaimed unlucky people and 100 self-proclaimed lucky people. For both, for both groups, they placed a $100 bill in the same space, all right? So all 200 people walked by the same place. They didn't talk or communicate like it was individual. Well, 100% of the unlucky, self-proclaimed unlucky people did not see the $100 bill. And 100% of the self-proclaimed lucky people saw the $100 bill. At some point, you have to realize what you're telling yourself is what your reticular activity system in your brain is going to filter in and filter out. At some point, you've got to work with yourself. At some point, you've got to love yourself. At some point, you've got to accept yourself. At some point, you've got to stop hating yourself. At some point, you've got to forgive yourself. And forgiveness is like love. You choose to do it. Love is not a feeling. That's lust. Love is a choice. (laughs) Same with forgiveness. No one's worthy of forgiveness, which is why everyone's worthy of forgiveness. Wow. That is a great place to end. But before we end, what is the best place people can get a hold of you if they want to work with you? Go to my website, Elizabeth Lewis, L-O-U-I-S dot com. I'm also pretty popular on LinkedIn. I also have an Instagram and all that jazz, but I'm more on LinkedIn. It gets to be a lot. Like <laughs> We will put your website link in the actual show notes so people can get a hold of you for that. I want to first thank you for having a healthy conversation, being open about what you went through, but also sharing some great tips because there is a lot in there that we can unravel. And all joking aside, I will find a way to get you back on. Maybe we can go live and we can actually do a live Q&A session with some some guests that come on or get some questions beforehand. So there's some ideas there that are percolating in my brain because you spurred a lot of great things 
and you have some great information to share with the audience and with the world. Oh, thank you, Ryan. And I think I, I really enjoyed being on the show. I'd love to go back on on more shows with you. It's it was very you're a very warm and welcoming host. I really appreciated that. It was fun. Thank you. Yeah, I, it's a conversation between two two human ugh, two humans. My gosh, I can't speak again. I'm I really love it. I think like you're actually speaking better than I think you're realizing because you're actually nailing it most of the time. But I do the same thing. I tell my clients I speak New Age Elizabethan. So I love that you do the same thing. That's cool. I thank you for coming on the show. It's been an honor for you to be here. Healthy conversation and look forward to having you on another show. Thank you so much. You're welcome.